0: Today on Edge Effects. is
1: central to the late 19th century. In yeah. the most basic sense. People need water to drink, and people need water to dispose of their waste. And on a <laughs> real simple level, you can't do both in the same body of water, but Americans try.
0: <laughs> Historian Jesse Gant speaks with Richard White, author of the new book, The Republic for Which It Stands, The United States During Reconstruction and the Gilded Age, 1865 through 1896. They discuss relationships among the period's changing economic order, government structure, impending environmental crises, and national concern over preserving the idea of home.
2: Well, we are very fortunate to have you on Edge Effect, so thanks for making the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. And congratulations on the publication of this uh, wonderful new book, The Republic for Which It Stands, The United States During Reconstruction and the Gilded Age, 1865 to 1896. Do you want to start off by just giving us the bare bones introduction to the story you're telling?
1: Sure. This is a book that takes the story of the United States um, in the Oxford history of the United States from the end of the Civil War till 1896. And essentially the way I think of it is This is a point in which American ideology, the idea of Americans have of what they want their country to be, meets a recalcitrant reality. It's an attempt to forge a free labor republic, which is going to be based on a homogeneous citizenship enforced by the federal government, in which the United States will essentially be a series of Springfield, Illinois, Abraham Lincoln's Mm -hmm. hometowns. And instead, what they get is an industrial nation, more and more diverse, diverse ethnically, diverse religiously, diverse racially. And it is not going to be the world that they imagined. It's going to be an industrial society. And in many ways, what I see taking shape is our modern world. And it's taking shape in a way that nobody ever would have anticipated in 1865.
2: Do you want to comment a little bit on on how you see this book comparing to the existing studies of the period we already have?
1: Sure. When I was in graduate school, which was a Mm -hmm. long time ago now, the, the standard account of this period was really Robert Wiebe's search for order. And Robert Wiebe stipulated a very different world than the one that i see he saw a world of island communities unattached he was talking about the creation of a national society he's talking about the whole period as essentially leading up to the rise of progressivism he carries the story into the 19 20s the other major account was richard Hofstadter in a couple of books the american political tradition and social darwinism and it, in many ways what he sees is a as a kind of liberalism which will go down to defeat but he sees as having far more power than i ever did and, it, and certainly mm-hmm. social darwinism um, never has the influence that hofstetter attributed to it so when i was in graduate school that was how the field stood and the thing is, is that particularly in regard to Weeby, that book was so influential that it pretty much stopped discussion. There for a mm-hmm. long time was not a lot of serious consideration of the Gilbert Age. People read mm-hmm. Weeby, and Weeby told the story, and that was it. The reconsideration begins with books like Nell Painter's Standing at Armageddon, where Nell Painter begins to add in the re- class and racial conflict of the period. And um, Jackson Lear's Rebirth of a Nation, where where Jackson Lear's takes essentially Weeby's political framework, but adds to it a kind of cultural crisis. So these are the versions that were on, in play when I started writing this. And I don't take a lot from Weeby, I don't take a lot from Hostetter, but clearly Painter and Lear's inform my account. My account ends up being quite different because first of all, I see the United States as already a national society. I see the Civil War as a, as a conflict over nationalism and the triumph of nationalism. So we talking about a world which is fragmented. I see a world which has already been unified in many ways by the Civil War. The kinds of trends that Hofstetter talked about, especially liberalism, I see liberalism as a strong ideological force, but really as a dying political force. And I talk about the decline of liberalism throughout the book. Um, What I add to Painter and Lear's is I try to give a larger, more integrated account around the rise of capitalism, I bring in popular culture, I bring in various regions of the country, and I look at the ways in which the American state, not in a European sense, but in a quite particular American sense, is getting more and more power. So I try for an integration, which is not just one single theme, but the multiple themes historians have developed over the last 15 or 20 years.
2: So as you're navigating this complicated historiography, you're looking out from the world of 1865 across the next several decades of, of U.S. history, and you're thinking on a continental scale for the, for the sort of spatial aspects of your story. It's quite a challenging task. Can you talk a little bit about the, the challenges this book presented as you were writing and researching it?
1: The United States is really, in 1865, imagining itself as a world in which the old antebellum world has now failed. The the dispute between the North and South, as far as the Republican Party is concerned, is settled. It's going to be a strong, centralized federal government. It's going to be a uniform set of rights. But what does that mean? I mean, how exactly do you begin to project federal authority and protect citizenship as a national whole in what are really three distinct parts of the country? In industrial Northeast, or Northeast is not yet industrial, but is industrialized. A South which is really ravaged and defeated, and a West which the United States has claimed for a very long time but has not occupied. So you'll take these, this set of single ideals, and you apply them to three different regions, and they will work out quite differently in each place. That's why I've, I've come to adopt Eliot West's idea of a greater reconstruction. What's taking place here. Is, is an attempt to make over the West and the South in the image of the North and Midwest. The problem is, the image of the North and Midwest is frozen in about 1865, and all around them, the North and Midwest is already in the midst of great change. And this makes it a very volatile and confusing situation for the next 30 years.
2: Yeah, I was really struck by the, the framing and the and the usage of of the the way you use the term greater reconstruction in this book. And the varieties of regional scales that are that are being engaged with. You had a few points in the book where you talk about the kind of limits of the transnational in thinking about these problems. Can you say more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's fascinated me for the last, really, 20 years has been the issue of scale. What mm-hmm. scale do we write it? The local, regional, the national, the transnational. Right. And one of the frustrating things in a lot of American historiography is um, People adopt a scale as if it's a kind of conversion experience, you know, that the national or the transnational or the regional becomes a religion. And in fact, what they are is tools and they're useful for certain problems and not so useful for another. We're in the midst right now of a great transnational moment where historians are emphasizing the transnational and the global. Well, the transnational and the global are really important when you look at certain kinds of issues. But when I'm looking at the late 19th century United States, certainly there are transnational influences, but much of what happens in the United States is going to be a reaction against some of The tariff is a good example. The tariff <laughs> is an attempt to seal off American industry from competition from abroad, but at the same time, we don't seal ourselves off from immigration from abroad. And we don't seal ourselves off from ideas from abroad. Some things go through, other things go out. Some things are largely going to be national developments, even if a reaction to the transnational. Others are going to be transnational developments, things which look similar. When you look at the rise, for example, of powerful states in Europe and in the United States, you might say this is a single phenomenon. But it's not a single phenomenon. More and more, the new scholarship has emphasized that the United States develops a central state, and a powerful central state, but one not modeled on European bureaucracies and, American, and European military. The American bureaucracy is small, and the American military shrunk after the Civil War. Our state works on the basis of fee-based governance, which is quite different from the way it worked in Europe.
2: It's striking, too. I, one thing I really appreciate as you were working through the kind of issues of scale in the project and the very broad vision scale, we also have this turn uh, early on in the book toward home. And so we get a very micro level set of engagements where you're looking at Springfield, Illinois, a place that you've commented on a little bit. Can you talk about Springfield's place in this, in this book a little bit more and maybe even Springfield's houses and how they function?
1: The book opens with um, Lincoln's funeral and Lincoln's funeral is about going home. It's about going home to Springfield. And at first I thought of Springfield simply as a place, a small town in Illinois. But I began to realize that Springfield was much more important than that, that it symbolized the set of ideas which recur over and over again in all kinds of discussion of the Gilded Age, which is the importance of home, the central value of home. Home is the site of the American Republic. And I began to think that the United States in the Gilded Age, was a collection of homes. And Americans conceived of the Republic not as a collection of individuals, but as a collection of homes. And if you were put outside of the home, you were in very, very dangerous ground in the United States. It's a place where you could begin to lose rights very, very quickly. So what we're, what we're going to get here is Springfield becomes a site of the American imagination. Lincoln's house is the place where Lincoln is brought back to, um, it's a place which is celebrated. And Lincoln's home, as it shows up, particularly in the 1860 census, you realize this is a very different United States than will exist 30 Mm. years later. That Lincoln's neighbors are, some of them are as wealthy as he has, which is not very wealthy, but they're also quite poor people living right next door to him. It's a society in which the difference between the poorest people in Springfield and the richest people is not very great compared to what will come out later. And the kind of success which Lincoln will celebrate is the success of establishing a home. And the White House, in some ways, oddly enough, (laughs) is only the home writ large in American history. And what Lincoln wants to do is go back to, in fact, the older home. The White House is a different home, a national home, but his home is Springfield.
2: You know, Obviously, EdgeFX listeners are going to be really interested in the uh, environmental aspects of this story and stories of environmental crisis that you draw out. One idea that really emerges quite clearly is, is the notion of the 19th century as kind of a broad environmental crisis. Can you say more about this idea?
1: As I wrote the book, I came to environment obliquely. Oh. I'm an environmental historian. But my initial concern was trying to establish something as mundane as, did real wages increase during the 19th century? And I found out it's impossible to say whether they did or not. I mean, one of the things is I became very disillusioned with the usual economic measures to measure American well-being. But I came across another set of literature, which is pretty robust and pretty well-developed on um, the health of Americans. And it turns out that during the 19th century as a whole, Americans are getting shorter. They're getting sicker. They're living less long, and their children continue to die at uniformly high rates. And I tried to figure out why this is happening. And it turns out to be a quite complicated story. The easy answer for before the Civil War is tuberculosis. But tuberculosis is gradually being brought under more control, but never under complete control after the Civil War. After the Civil War, the argument seems to be that what is happening is not only urbanization, but in other parts of the United States, the decline in water quality, the spread of disease, particularly waterborne diseases, is having an immense effect on American health and American well-being. This is going to be true whether you're immigrant or whether you're native-born, and one of the nice things is many of the bodies the statistics measure only the native-born. Their lives are getting worse. It's not just immigrants. And so what I began to conceive of the whole period as a sustained environmental crisis, an environmental crisis which is affecting human health as well as in other places, other species with whom we share the country and, and the planet.
2: Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the waters sort of centric stories um, that you tell since, you know, Lincoln famously patented, uh, I think, a device to help on more on, you know, stuck riverboats at one point uh, in the antebellum years. And uh, another story about Lincoln famously describes how he encountered slaves for the first time on trips down the Ohio and and Mississippi Valley uh, rivers. You know, how did the 19th century, in particular on questions of water, um, help configure or how does it play in in the stories you tell?
1: Water is central to the late 19th century in the most basic sense. People need water to drink, and people need water to dispose of their waste. And on a... (laughs) a real simple level, you can't do both in the same body of water, but Americans try it. I mean, you, you, can really, you can really defecate and then drink out of the same place, and it doesn't really work out that well. So part of, the, part of the engineering challenge in a place like Chicago is going to be to draw your water in from Lake Michigan far enough out to be able to bring in pure water while disposing of wa- water in other places. But as you begin to do that, you realize you're facing some real basic political problems. Under the old Jacksonian liberal version, those who created waste were responsible for dealing with the consequences of it. But that really doesn't work when you have Chicago slaughterhouses, which are polluting the Chicago River, and Chicago slaughterhouses are the main industry. You can't force them to clean up. You really can't force them to clean up. And so you do, and Robin Einhorn has developed this brilliantly, what you do is you make this really going to be a matter of public good and public health. But by defining it as public, you're taking over a sort of private costs and putting them on the public as a whole so that slaughterhouses don't have to pay for the cleanup. Everybody pays for the cleanup. And at the same time, what you're doing is creating a tax burden which is going to favor the polluters over those who are bearing the, the effects of the pollution. The same kind of thing will happen when you um, try to bring in clean water. Well, how do you distribute it? Well, it goes first to those who are willing to pay the hookup costs and to pay the taxes necessary to bring the water in so that those who bring the water in and get the benefits of the water tend to be the middle and upper classes and not the poor. So what you're finding is the environmental consequences and the environmental costs are going to be allocated in a very unfair manner. They by and large favor the rich over the poor. The poor bear the costs of this. The rich get the benefits without bearing an equivalent cost to the benefits they get. So it becomes not just a question of environment. It becomes a question of political economy. And this will go on in other cities, New York, Boston, there's variations in other places. But one of the things I insist on is if you're going to look at environmental problems, you have to look at the political economic conditions under which they operate. And urban mm-hmm. water systems are a wonderful way to do that.
2: And there's some great scenes in the book of, of coal as well, the coal smoke clouds hanging over Pittsburgh and Chicago as people are riding the rail lines outside of the city and looking back upon the landscapes downtown. I'm struck by these stories on on several different places. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the role of the coal industry in this account? One of the great transitions
1: in human history is taking place during the Gilded Age, not just in the United States, but it's been taking place all all over the world, which is we're going to a regime of fossil fuels. We're going away of renewable energy sources, which had real problems, but they're wood, water, animal power. And then more and more of the power and the energy produced in the United States is going to depend on coal. I can't recall the exact date where it switches over, but I think by the 1880s, coal has replaced wood as the major energy source in the United States. And what it does, of course, is provide a much more efficient source of energy. But the cost is going to be pollution on an absolutely amazing scale. It's going to lead to places like Pittsburgh, where the lights are on in the middle of the day, you cannot see in the middle of the day, Chicago, which Hamlin Garland describes as you come in, or Frank Norris, I can't remember which one right now, is <laughs> this immense cloud hanging over the city. It's the kind of thing where people will, will talk about it. It's a change which has come in their lifetime, this sense of this dim, gray, dismal America, a kind of sense of the United States, which later on, I mean, I just rewatched Blade Runner, but that's the kind of sense (laughs) that you have of what, what this is turning the United States into. And people make distinctions among coal. One of the reasons they like anthracite is anthracite is a much more clean burning coal than bituminous coal. So which coal you burn has a lot to do with it. It's one of the reasons why Eastern cities are actually less polluted than Midwestern cities. So the ramifications of this go on and on. But people, by changing their energy source, are changing all kinds of things about their lives. And this too, of course, is going to have an effect on human health.
2: So you've spent a lot of time, obviously, studying the American West as well. And do you want to talk about the way that points further West also play out in, in the story of the environmental crisis?
1: I'm in a Western historian. I think my basic definition of myself will always be as a, as a Western historian. And in some ways, putting the West into context in the Gilded Age was a little sober because the West is important. The West is certainly ideologically important in how Americans think of themselves. One of the things that happens by the end of the century is American Westering tries to replace the Civil War as the great event in American history through which we understand the country. And politically, the West is gonna be very important because it's gonna secure Republican dominance in the U.S. Senate, particularly after the disenfranchisement of black people in the South, but I began to realize that there really weren't that many people in the West compared to the East. At one point, I do a set of comparisons where I compare the population of everybody West of the 100th meridian to the major cities of the United States. And if you leave out San Francisco, New York, Brooklyn, and Chicago, we'll have more people than people in the entire American West. So the American West is going to be Important, but it's not going to be important because huge numbers of people are going. there. More people are going into the cities, some of which are Western cities, than are going into the West. So this romance of a rural West of, of this kind of settlement, that one doesn't hold up very, very well, at least West of the 100th Meridian. The middle border is another question. And in terms of resources, I found out, well, Western resources are important. But not all that important. The United States has plenty of copper, coal and trees until late in the century. So the drawing down of Western resources is really going to come at the end of my story. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I argue here and in other books that the American expansion into the West was in many sense premature. It's it's. Provoked by the building of railroads into the West, by the needs of the railroads into the West, and it has great repercussions for Indian people that you have to lure people west. You don't lure as many people as you want, and that many of those people fail. So I begin to see westering as not a great American success story, but really as a kind of story which is a calculated mistake to serve certain interests, and the country as a whole would have been better off if the West had been much more slowly settled.
2: So you've talked a little bit about places like uh, Springfield, the far west, the south. Let's turn attention to a little bit to the cities because you know, urban stories are another big aspect of, of the, the stories you're telling. Can you tell us a few of the urban stories from this book?
1: The cities become the central point of American hopes and American worries in the late 19th century. When you look at the cities, you realize this is a very, very different country. There is no equivalent of a New York or a Chicago at any other time in American history before this. And when they look at the cities, they begin to see a strangeness. And the strangeness is going to be in part because of immigration. But you can't say it's only immigration because immigrants spread all over the United States. In a place like Wisconsin, the Dakotas are, are heavily immigrants. But when you go into um, New York or Chicago, you see a concentration of immigrants and many different kinds of immigrants speaking many different languages. You also see an inequality which shocks Americans. You Hmm. see a kind of place where there's going to be both mansions and poverty, the worst tenements the United States has ever seen. And they can be literally within a quarter of a mile or a mile of each other. You see incredible crowding. You see children on the street. And at the same time, you're seeing an incredible productivity, the ability of the United States to begin to manufacture goods, to begin to change things on a scale that people had never imagined, the height of the buildings, the transportation systems, the new urban infrastructures. All of these things are brand new and awe-inspiring. And so the American reaction to this is going to be a, a mixture of hope and dread. And really, the whole Gilded Age is really just about hope and dread. It's this, these <laughs> dystopian fan, fantasies and um, these utopian fantasies.
2: What are uh, some of the things that surprised you in, in conducting and in researching and writing this book?
1: One of them, we've mentioned a couple of them. One of them yeah. is the centrality of the home. The home is hiding in plain sight. It's one of the things that happens when I write any sort of history book. About, about halfway through, it occurs to my, me that I'm an idiot. Um, that that I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've been looking at this word over and over again. People say home. People say home. People talk about the home, and I pay no attention to home. I start paying attention to the home. It's like a key which unlocks the whole period. That's how Americans judged whether a change was good or bad. Its effect on the home. That's how people judged whether people were Americans or not Americans whether, in fact, they lived in what the dominant society considers a suitable home. This becomes the key for me for understanding a whole section of American values throughout this whole period. So one of the things that surprised me was the centrality of the home, which I regard as as one of the central themes of the book. The other one, which is based on a kind of new scholarship that's coming out largely in political science, but also among historians, is the nature of governance. One of the mistakes I think historians have made is trying to argue about the American state thinking, well, a real state, we've got to look like Germany. We've got to look like France. We've got to have a bureaucracy. We've got to have a large standing army. Well, we don't have much of a bureaucracy, we don't have a large standing army, therefore we much have a weak state, as the older argument with a country of parties and courts. But we're not. What we have is quite robust ability of the federal government to begin to impose its will, but it does so through fee-based government. Fee-based governments is paying people, whether you're a postmaster, whether you're a sheriff, whether you're a revenue agent, I mean, it goes on and on, whether you're a customs agent, you get a fee or you get a portion of the goods that you um, can tax or assess. We do things by subsidy. We do things by leasing them out. We use the churches as agents for governing Indians. We give corporations large subsidies to build railroads. So we have a style of governance which is based on the granting of fees and the granting of subsidies. And it is no wonder that we turn into one of the most corrupt nations in the world. One of the odd things about all this, of course, is that in many ways we're returning to that, (laughs) Uh, utterly ignoring the lessons of the 19th century where Americans rejected government for profit. Because if you make government office profitable, people are going to seek the maximum profit. When people seek the maximum profit, the government is going to be corrupt. And that is what happened. And how that worked out is one of the things that really surprised me and the third thing that surprised me i mean i'm I'm maybe easily surprised but not (laughs) in this case it was what the american dream consists of when i teach american history my students always talk about the american dream and so i'm often a little puzzled by what they mean when they say american dream as far as i can tell they think that if you come to the united states and you work hard and if things break your way you can be fabulously wealthy you know you can be bill gates or whoever And maybe that's what Americans now think of the American dream, but it's certainly not what they thought about it in the 19th century. In the 19th century, though, they didn't use the phrase, they used a similar one. That in the United States, you could get a competence or a competency. And a competency is enough money that you can support yourself and your family, put some aside for hard times and old age, give your children a start in life. And when you've achieved that, you've had enough. I mean, "is enough is the word that meant something in the 19th century, in a way it doesn't in the 21st century, that the simple accumulation of wealth is not the point of life. And furthermore, they thought that the American economy was judged not by its ability to produce goods, particularly if those were poorly distributed, its ability to sustain the American republic. The republican economy will produce citizens who have a competency who will sustain the republic. So their whole judgment of what a good economy was and what their own individual success was is very different from today. And I found that quite appealing and quite surprising.
2: Yeah, I was really struck about some of the points you just said. And can you say a little bit more, you know, about what, what you think this, what makes this story so important for readers and students, you know, in 2017?
1: When I write about it today, there's an eerie sense as I was writing the book that, mm-hmm. um what I'm doing is, Writing about our world is a shadow of an earlier world. And it's not, of course. I mean, worlds are always different. But when I began to go through the kinds of things that were similar, rising inequality, okay, we certainly got that. Technological breakthroughs, we certainly have that. A set of weak presidencies and political mm. stalemate well we mm-hmm. we certainly have that a sense of environmental crisis well we certainly have that you know a sense that the country itself is falling apart in ways that um, might not be we might not be able to put back together again well these kinds of things occur in both periods and so it's just list after list after list I compile of, of things that were that were similar so I thought okay what we have here is a chance to see how people in a similar, not identical, situation, really cope with their world. And one of the lessons you can have by going back to the gilded world is not that history repeats itself, but that a certain set of things were tried under similar situations that maybe we should not try again. One of them, for example, being this idea of fee-based governance, of, of, of allowing private parties to provide government services. It didn't work out then. I don't see why it's going to work out now. But more than that, in there is a set of ideas which were thought of but never reached fruition. So I take the actually the opposite position here. Well, there are certain things we thought of but didn't try, and that maybe those are worth a try. There are an attempt, a long-standing attempt in Americans society to have the federal government enforce a uniform set of rights. That has been a struggle which has continued from the Gilded Age to today, and I think it's one of the things there should be renewed emphasis on. Mm -hmm. The idea of what is a good economy, what's an economy that's going to secure the best for the most people, and what is it that the most people want out of the economy is a serious question that people considered in the Gilded Mm -hmm. Age, and which we really don't consider today. Now we just do a series of crude measures of more is always better, and that somehow if some people get fabulously wealthy, the kind of old Carnegie argument, it will somehow filter back down to help everybody else. These kinds of things were tried and failed, but the idea of competency really wasn't tried, and maybe that would be something we could look at. So the Gilded Age is really good to think we can see people in similar situations. We can think, see how they acted. We are not unique in human history. Things are going to turn out differently than they did in the Gilded Age. But we always have to deal with the past. And the Gilded Age is the most immediate and most relevant part of the past in many ways for considering our our current situation.
2: It feels like a good natural ending point, maybe. but do you want to say maybe more, just uh, any final points to just kind of underscore things that maybe you want? readers to really walk away with?
1: Yeah, I mean, the thing that I think readers should think about, and this is why we study any history at all. Um, I mean, the morals of history sometimes <laughs> sound like mm-hmm. a country in Western, so it doesn't have to be this way. <laughs> you know, at each time, each critical era in American history or any history, people are confronted by choices. Some things are more likely to happen than others. You can't have everything you want, but it, things are not inevitable. And when we go back, we can see alternative visions of ourselves. We can see, to quote Lincoln, in some ways, better versions of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And the Gilded Age provides us with a vision of some of the worst versions of ourselves, but also some of the best versions of ourselves. And by looking at that, we can begin to evaluate our own situation and begin to think as much as possible about, okay, what is the world that we really want to leave to our children? What is the world that we want to shape that 100 years from now, when people look back on it and try to look at what is really the second Gilded Age, they think, okay, they really screwed this up. But in there, in there is an attempt to really do something which can still succeed. And maybe if we're really lucky, they won't even think we really screwed things up. But that remains to be seen.
2: (laughs) Well, I, I have reached the end of my questions. I was just thinking though, when I drive, I live in St. Louis and I drive occasionally through Springfield on my way back to Madison. And there's a large energy plant just outside of town that actually has a a representation of Abraham Lincoln's head on one of the towers, one of the smoke towers outside of town. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a, it was a strange landscape to be driving through as I was thinking about this book and, and talking with you. But I really, I really appreciate your time and I really enjoyed this.
0: That was historian Jesse Gant speaking with Richard White, professor of American history at Stanford University. They discuss his new book, The Republic for Which It Stands The United States During Reconstruction and the Gilded Age, 1865 to 1896. He's also the author of Railroaded, The Transcontinentals, and the Making of Modern America, available now from W. W. Norton and Company. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of Che the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Thomas, Brian Hamilton, and me, Adam Bierman. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. We'll be back soon with episodes featuring historian Megan Raby and Executive Director of the Land Loss Prevention Project, Savvy Horn. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to the EdgeFX podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. That really helps connect us to new listeners. You can also follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And as always, keep up with a steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at EdgeFX.net.